we can become great at doing the the things that we do well, the things that are, we focus on. Like I'm, I think our audience is great at selling liberty. I think we have yeah. been amazing at doing that. Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C-level executives to help them future-proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. You start to ask questions that pique his interest and get him to feel like, okay, this guy's actually got something that maybe can help me out. And then in your asking of questions and trying to uncover the real problems, build that natural trust. I know I went in the monologue there, man. (laughs) Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Happy Sunday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. And thank you for joining us on a Sunday throwback episode heading back to September of 2018. This conversation makes me smile. It is with a good friend, the late, great Steve Horwitz. Now, Steve, as you'll hear, we start the conversation off. He was originally a professor up in uh, my old home neck of the woods in St. Lawrence County at St. Lawrence University. Um, and we discuss, uh, obviously, his move from there to Indiana, uh, which, uh, you know, he he definitely made some really good friends here in the uh, Greater We Are Libertarians network as well. Um, and it's just, it's funny how worlds connect, uh, you know, with him being the North Country heading to Indiana and syncing up with a We Are Libertarians family, yours truly being from the North Country, moving to Philadelphia, and still somehow syncing up with a We Are Libertarians family. Um, but on today's episode, which again is from uh, our, our great conversation with the late, great Steve Horwitz from September 2018, we dig into the economics of liberty. We discuss uh, a number of topics, starting with an in-depth conversation on minimum wage, uh, UBI, uh, automation, and then also artificial intelligence. We also discussed trade in the era of Trump, specifically focusing on the differences between free trade versus fair trade. Uh, We also discussed the dangers of economic nationalism, and then we concluded the conversation with a critique of democratic socialism while presenting a realistic libertarian alternative. Guys, this is just, again, a fun conversation, and I'm so thankful for the technology that we have nowadays that lets a conversation like this exist forever. And uh, really, it's a great conversation that I, I hope you guys will get as much value as I did way back in September of 2018. So with that being said, on to the show, the late and great Steve Horwitz here on The Brian Nichols Show. Well, thank you, Brian. I'm very happy to be here. Always good to talk to the North Country people. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you uh, you had a chance to uh, to join uh, the boss hog there, Jeremiah yep. Morrill, over on his show. And, and I was yep. saying before we started recording, uh, Jeremiah and I always had this ongoing joke that we're, we're pseudo-cousins because Jeremiah actually is from upstate New York, up in Messina, New York, which is just north of where I was up in Augensburg. And uh, you obviously served as a professor of economics at, at St. Lawrence University over in Canton, New York, which is just a stone throw away from Augensburg. And you were there for quite a while. Yep, for 27, 20 Eight years, yep. <laughs> and and obviously, being out in Indiana, one of the, the, the things you're going to be missing out on is the negative 40-degree temperature and lake effect snow. Yes, uh, both of those. And and that, that lovely feeling when you start your car in the morning and the and the tires feel like they're square. <laughs> yeah, we're going to... 
And, and when you start to that. accelerate over 30 miles an hour and you're you're at you know 5,000 RPM because that's right, the engine's that's not cool. warm. It's it's literally right. growing. Yes. Oh yeah, it's yes. always fun. I, I'm I'm down in Philadelphia, PA now myself, so right. I uh, I only get to experience that. And I'm up there for for Christmas, and uh, yeah. even then, that's that's just enough. I don't. I used to. Much. I used to have an old uh, 1985 Mercury Lynx. It was a stick, but but it but the real th- weird thing about that when it got really cold was the you wouldn't get the power steering until the car warmed up a little bit, and so you'd back it out of the driveway at minus 25, <laughs> and you'd have to crank that wheel right just to turn out of the driveway oh, until yeah. the until the power steering fluid warmed up enough to get through. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, let, let, let's start off because obviously you um you started out your your professional career like I said up at SLU in Northern New York in economics and. Uh, part of my show is I like to just have people on to learn their journey, to learn really what brought them into either, you know, for example, last uh, the last episode I had on here back uh, on Tuesday, I had Keith Rubino. He's running for uh, the New York State Assembly up in the 118th, and he's running as a Democrat with the Democratic Socialist platform. And I was just interested to hear, you know, how do you, how do you get to, to that point versus where I am as a libertarian or I'd say a classical liberal? And I know you've identified yourself as a bleeding heart libertarian. So mm-hmm. with that, I mean, Steve, if you could kind of give uh, not only myself but my audience an idea of what brought you to to not only be a libertarian but one who's so invested and so passionate about economics. Well, so the story is is a, uh, an interesting one. Uh, when I was in my mid-teens, you know, 14, 15, like I think a lot of teenage boys, uh, certainly in, in the 70s and early 80s, I read all kinds of science fiction and sort of stuff stuff like that. And weird, wacky. I read Bible prophecy. I read like Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods, right? And all this sort of, anybody who had this sort of weird, unusual take on the world, I found interesting and fascinating. And at the time, uh, I was working at the public library. I, I grew up outside Detroit in the Detroit suburbs. And uh, I was working at the public library. And a book came across the, the the desk one time, a new book we got in, a book called Restoring the American Dream by a guy named Robert Ringer. Now, Ringer was a guy I wrote in the 70s. He wrote some self-help books and some sort of, you know, investment type books. But this book was 1980 uh, and it was a political book and it was basically a, a defense of libertarianism for the mass public. And it was, you know, came out 79 or 80 just before the Ed Clark for president campaign uh, and, and all that was happening. And so I found, I looked at this book, you know, just uh, not randomly, but sort of looked at, oh, here's another guy with a theory, right? Uh, who, <laughs> who thinks the world screwed up and he's got a weird way of looking at it. And so I took the book home and read the book pretty quickly and, uh, you know, had that experience, I think, that many of us have, which is, well, yeah, right? Yes, of <laughs> course, right, this. Right. And, and sort of that experience of this is how I've always sort of thought about things, but I've never been able to, to put a name to it or systematize it in a way. Right. So so I read the Ringer book and, you know, I was a nerdy 15, 16 year old, whatever. I work at a library. So I thought, all right, well, let's look at the books he's referring to in here and see if our library has any. I'll read that next. Right. And so, so I read one book on libertarianism, and what's the next book? The, the one of the books that was he referenced a lot that the library had was Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty. Now that's mm. a great book, but that's a hardcore sort of anarcho-capitalist, right? You know, that's that's Rothbard. And so I went right from the my first book, boom, all the way to Rothbard <laughs> in one in one step. And and that book too, right? Same experience. Like, wow, this is I, you know, this is persuasive. So. This is now here's where it gets sorry gets kind of fun. It's 1980, right? And and so now I got a couple things to do. So I learned a little, I now I'm hearing about Austrian economics and I 
okay, I'll maybe read about that. But but the other thing that's happening at this time, uh, in the spring of 1980, I was a junior in high school. I was enrolled in an American literature, an AP American literature course in high school. And sure enough, what's on the reading list in this course is The Fountainhead. So mm-hmm. so I, I just read Rothbard, and now I read The Fountainhead. Uh, at the same time, and those anyone who's listening who follows my you know Facebook page or knows me, right? Well, this will not surprise them. Around the same time, I also became a big Rush fan, not Limbaugh, the band, right? <laughs> and and so that's another little piece of this puzzle, right? That's sort of all coming together at at the same time. The other part of the story is it was 1980, and the Republican convention was in Detroit, and our uh, uh, AP high school history American history teacher, who was a big time radical lefty, uh, but but knew people and had gotten like four or five or six volunteer spots at the convention for his best students, and it turns out right that I had he'd given me one, and he you know I had, had sort of won or been awarded this opportunity to work at the Republican convention, and in between the time that I got that. And the summer when the convention rolled around, like I went full hardcore libertarian. And I had this decision to make. I ended up doing it because I, I kept my commitment and it was basically passed out bags and stuff like that. But so, so yeah, so, so spring of 1980 and then school's over and I'd read The Fountainhead. So I thought, okay, you know, I got to read Atlas Shrugged, I guess. And so I, summer starts and I buy Atlas Shrugged and I think, all right, I got the whole summer to read this monstrous, you know, 1100 page book. Uh, so I pick it up one day and I start reading and pretty much 48 hours later. I mean, I slept a little bit, but I did really nothing for 48 hours except read Atlas Shrugged. Uh, and and in four, done in 48 hours. And so, you know, as the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, I went, then I went to the University of Michigan uh, intending to be at the time, maybe a computer science major or something like that, right? Uh, and then in my freshman year, I needed a fifth course. I didn't have quite as many credits as I probably should have. So I took a fifth course. I said, you know what? I should take intro econ because if I'm going to keep doing this libertarianism stuff, right, I need to know some economics to be mm-hmm. able to talk about it. And so I took intro econ and had the experience that most economists have, which is, oh, my God, <laughs> if I thought this other stuff, this really makes sense. Of course, this is the way the world works, right? And you have that experience. And so um, I switched majors to economics. I later added a philosophy major on as well. And then I also started reading Austrian economics at the time. And, uh, and so by the time I was a sophomore or junior in college, I, I pretty much knew I wanted to go to graduate school, get a PhD in economics. Uh, I also sort of knew it was probably going to be a George Mason. And I knew I wanted to, to be an economics professor. My dad is a retired professor, so I grew up in a household with a, with a professor. And Emma, his brother is an economist, not a professor. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a, one of those weird guys who sort of knew from his sophomore or junior year in college exactly <laughs> what he wanted to do with his life and did it and ended up, you know, if you'd ask me, where are you going to be in 19, you know, where are you going to be in the year 2000? What would you like to be doing? Yeah, teaching economics, a place that, you know, I have good students and I can write stuff and maybe written a book or two and, and you know, that'd be a great life. Well, guess what? There it is. There you are. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that, you know, that, that's. And then, well, I'll just say, add my four years in graduate school at George Mason were just the most amazing four years. We, I had a, an amazing cohort of students and faculty, and uh, that whole experience uh, of sort of doing that work and thinking seriously about ideas and learning what it takes to to, to succeed as a as an academic was was just amazing. So, um, and twenty eight years at St. Lawrence, you know, uh, I, I, there's reasons I came to Ball State, several different ones. 
but but you'll never hear me say a bad word about St. Lawrence. So good old St. Lawrence University. I know you're a huge yeah. hockey fan too, so it yes. must have been must have been yes, fun with great. the uh, the Clarkson University versus St. Lawrence University hockey uh, yeah. hockey matches. That's always fun. And, 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 it is, and so right. So I moved to Indy, right? And Indy doesn't even have like an AHL team; they have an <laughs> ECHL team. It's it's lower. I mean, college Division One college hockey is better quality than this. But what is sort of cool is their practice facility is is literally. Two minutes from my house now, right? They're just around the corner here in Fishers. That is where they're the fuel tank, as they call it, the, their <laughs> practice facility. So I can't even escape hockey by coming to Indiana. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, upstate New York, we were blessed. We had uh, Jimmy Howard, who uh, yep. he played for the Red Wings. And I, I, correct me yep. if I'm wrong, you're a big Red, Red, Red Wings fan, right? I am a big Red Wings fan. In fact, if you look at my Facebook page, you'll see a picture of me with the Stanley Cup and Jimmy Howard taken uh, in Augensburg, right, it, as a matter of fact. Was it at the place? Uh, it was. It was taken at, uh, at down by the river when he was he came after they won the cup in yeah. 2008. Okay, because I actually so um, my dad at the time he was the the county legislature chair Tom Nichols, um, oh. and um, we ended up we went to the place which is like one of you know the Augensburg institutions for you know nightlife if you will, and that's not saying too much with Augensburg right. being nightlife. Um, well, about 8, 8 p.m. is nightlife. That's right. <laughs> And um and, and Jimmy had came back, you know, I had the cup he brought in and that was a it was funny, I remember it distinctly because it was a Monday night football game and I've never been as big into hockey as I am into football. Um and I remember I was trying to, to peek yeah. up at the screen because I think it was the opening night game against the Giants and the Redskins. And uh I remember trying to, to peek back and forth, but uh then the you know, he comes in with the Stanley Cup and it's one of those things where okay, that's that's pretty cool. You see the yeah. trophy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, how about this? Let's let's get into the economics, because I think, you know, Having an economist on my show, I, I would be uh, I'd be a fool not to ask about some uh, you know economics going forward. So, I, I have a couple of topics I wanted to dig into a little bit with the time we have, and it's more based on what's popular today in the rhetoric we're hearing, uh, not only from those on the left but also those I'd say in the Trump right. Um, so yeah. to start off, I really wanted to start addressing the concepts of. Minimum wage. So we've yeah. heard a lot of people uh, with the, the the big fight for fifteen, where they're they're demanding the fifteen dollar minimum per hour, uh, minimum uh, wage uh, for for low skilled low income workers. Uh, we're even seeing people like Tucker Carlson, who uh, he used to be a, a voice of seeming logic and reason, um, you know, going on his show, going after people like Jeff Bezos, who's the the founder of Amazon.com, and decrying him for paying his workers low wages. So. From an economist standpoint, can you kind of give me the pitch as to why minimum wage itself isn't necessarily the right way to help those low-skill, low-income workers? Right. So I think the way to start is to realize that, look, if you're if you're a firm, okay, you can't afford to pay your workers more than the amount of value that they produce. So, so you know, when if, if we raise the price of hiring people, if we raise the wage to $15 an hour, what that means is only people who have enough skill and are in the right sort of industries to produce $15 an hour worth of value are going to get hired. So what you're saying to everyone else is you can't produce $15 worth of value, you're not going to get hired. And so minimum wage, you know, as you just said, the impact is mostly – you know, exclusively on low-skilled workers, right? On workers who for whose whose productivity isn't enough to justify that wage. If we want to help those workers, the way we help them is we up their productivity, or or we or you know we, we get them into industries where where they're producing something more valuable. So you know, if, if we can, re, you know, reform the education system, get people more skills, 
find ways to get people more more uh, more job either job training or job experience. One of the problems with the minimum wage is it cuts off uh, people with low skills from getting much needed job experience so they can move up that ladder. So you know that's that's the basic argument there, right? That 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 you you know it, it's interesting that people on the left, right? Uh, they, they will if you say, do you think? Putting taxes, more taxes on cigarettes will cause people to buy fewer cigarettes. Or do you think putting more taxes on soda would cause them to buy less soda? Right? They're going to say, sure, right. We want to tax cigarettes more so people buy less. All right. So what you're saying is if you raise the price of something, people buy less of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So why doesn't that hold with labor, right? If you raise the price of, 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 of you know, the raise wages artificially, right? So I think that, that that's for me. For me, that's the key argument. I think if you go back historically, what you find, and it, you will find, is that the 100 years ago, 120 years ago, the people who supported raising the minimum wage or having a minimum wage did so precisely because they knew it was shut out uh, black uh, immigrant workers, it would shut women out of labor markets. The whole idea of a minimum wage was to was to make sure that the least to, to sort of cause the least productive people to not to not have work, right? And if you were racist, it was to shut blacks out of the labor market. Now, that's not to say people who support the minimum wage today are racist. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that the people who were racist, right, they they had the economics right. They understood right that it would cut it would cut those people out. They just thought that was a good thing, not a bad thing. So so people today, you know, who argue who, who dispute the economics right have to both contend with the sort of free market types who say it's a bad thing, and they're all progressive, you, you know, racists who said it was a good thing. So so I think that the history of the minimum wage is is particularly nasty in that way, and it suggests that the analysis that people like me would put forward is right. Which is, it's going to even if you don't intend it to have racial impact, it will. Mm -hmm. uh, to the, you know, and it will have impact on lower skilled workers, right? So, okay, so now, now, now we're going to have to go against the emotional arguments people make. They say, well, it, you know, there, there already is so many low skilled workers who are being pushed out of the market, and then you couple in with the fact that we have so much not only automation, but now the the new, you know, big boogeyman is AI, artificial intelligence. It's going to take over the world and it's going to make everybody obsolete pretty much for their jobs. And one of the arguments that's being pushed, and it's actually, it was something that was kind of discussed back uh, in the later days of Milton Friedman was the idea of a universal basic income. So what's your take on, on UBI in, in not only where we are today with all the automation, but 10, 15 years on the road when AI is going to take over the world? Well, let's ch let's challenge the premise, okay? All right. Uh, which is two things. I'm not convinced that we'll ever run out of things for humans to do. Agreed. So it's you know uh, w if we can automate automating jobs is great, right? You know we and and we use we use robots for all kinds of things right now. I'm staring at a robot in front of me. It's called a P, you know a PC. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, I've got, I've got. So uh, I drive a robot. Right, I mean, machines help us do all this stuff already. So we should, you know, fearing machines and even AI. Right, the the more that 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 mechanical devices can save us labor for for those things, the more time humans have to create, right, to do artistic work, to to to, uh, to entertain each other. I mean, look how much we we spend and do on that now compared to 40, 50 years ago. So. I'm not worried about quote running out of jobs. Things will change, and the nature of work will change. But I'm not. I'm not worried about that. Uh, as for uh, as for UBI, okay. Here's the thing: if 
we could wave our magic wand and replace the entire welfare system as it exists right now with a, U, with a UBI, I think that's a better world to be in. It depends mm -hmm. exactly what the UBI would be, right, and all that. But in the real world, you know, uh, where, where actual people man the political uh, processes, the call for a, a UBI is not going to replace, no one's going to get rid of the entire welfare bureaucracy. you got to remember that the problem primary beneficiaries of the welfare bureaucracy are the bureaucrats, not the people it's intended to yeah. help. And they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep that bureaucracy. And if you put a UBI on top of the existing welfare bureaucracy, then you have a disaster, right? You have oh, an yeah. absolute fiscal disaster. I mean, a UBI is, has the potential for fiscal disaster anyway, right? But on top of the current welfare system. So, so you know, in, it's, it looks good, quote, in theory, but when you think about what would actually happen if you tried to put it into practice, it, it, it's tricky. Um, you know, again, if, if we really could replace everything with UBI, fine, but that's unlikely to happen. Yeah. And like you said, because a lot of the, the arguments aren't, as you framed it, getting rid of the current welfare system. It's actually putting the UBI to supplement the existing right. welfare system. And that just, I mean, that's trillions and trillions of dollars that is going right. to be pushed into this, this welfare yeah. state, which is just going to make things collapse. But the, it, it's shocking to me and it's kind of, it this actually is the big kick in in my butt to get me more into the libertarian side of things versus uh, traditionally growing up. I was more conservative and, you know, raw, raw GOP was watching people within the GOP during the, the Trump tsunami back in 2015, 2016, who they, they kind of left their principles at the table in their support of Trump. And with that, the Trump populism that, that, went around Trump in terms of you have all these people like the coal, the coal workers and, and the, the quote unquote disenfranchised, you know, uh, 1970s manufacturing worker. And like you mentioned, you know, these are the jobs that people were doing that were taken over by automation. Um, but now it's been turned into kind of this sentiment that when you have all these overseas companies taking away air quote, the American jobs, this is a bad thing that now that we are in such a, a trade deficit, we're in a, a bad economic position. And I've heard, you know, a lot of people who argue in favor of this idea of fair trade over free trade. So I know one of your, your focuses in, in economics was looking at macroeconomics. So with that, what's your perspective as to this argument that's being pushed by the populist Trump uh, supporters? in fair trade versus the more libertarian free market approach to free trade? Uh, they, that they're wrong. <laughs> and that <laughs> in pushing for fair trade, the peop only people they're punishing are, are, are consumers, American consumers and consumers elsewhere. First of all, I don't even quite understand what fair trade means. Uh, it, it, does that mean if, if other countries raise their tariffs, we have to, ra have to raise ours to make things fair? Does does it? I don't even know what what's the notion of fair here. I don't even understand. All all I can tell you is, um, if I had the power to do it, I would eliminate all of our tariffs and import restrictions. I don't care what other countries do. Right? Unilateral free trade is is superior to whatever amount of fairness you want to argue when both sides are trying to enact tariffs and quotas and and so on. So the it's consumers who get harmed when we do that. Mm -hmm. the, and part of it is this belief somehow, I mean, Trump's the worst because he just doesn't get it at all, that, that the budget deficit is like this loss of money, right? That for Trump, he thinks like a CEO. That's like the budget deficit is like like negative profits, right? 
Right. But it's not. All it means is that, that we're buying more goods and services from other countries than they're buying for us, which also means they're shipping us more capital resources than we're shipping to them. It's not like when we buy Chinese TVs, it's not like the dollars sort of disappear into the ether. They, they end up in the hands of the Chinese who want to get who want to get rid of them, right, so that they can get get one and sort of do other things. So, so they have to use those to buy back American assets, basically. So the, the fact that there are chi Chinese in, in, investing in U.S. or holding U.S. government bonds or all those sorts of things is just the flip side of the fact that we're buying their TVs. And, and we, you know, we talk about a budget deficit, but you could call it a capital account surplus if you wanted. It would be the same thing. And the other argument I frequently use is we don't worry about, quote, budget deficits when we talk about people. Right. I have a huge budget deficit with Kroger. I spend way more on food from them than they buy economic services for me. It's not like they're paying me to stand in the produce section and do lectures. Right. So <laughs> so we not only don't we worry about those budget deficits, we know that specialization and exchange is what makes the world go round. That's what generates progress. So so it's no different. All the national budget deficit is, is that there's lots of individual people who chose to buy things that were by the way we keep track of such things produced in other countries. What, why do we worry about that any more than I, we worry about me buying groceries produced by Kroger or that we worry about me buying avocados grown in California? Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think, so I say I think because I had Michael Johns. He, Michael Johns is one of the, the leading founders of the Tea Party back in the, uh, the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And mm -hmm. he was of the argument that the goal, the vision for Donald Trump's economics is not to have a combative trade war, but rather the vision, the utopian idea is to have the trade war lead to a decrease in tariff in trade or in, in terms of tariffs rather across the board from not only the United States, but also from countries we trade with. So if we're going to put, you know, XYZ tariff on Chinese goods, and it's actually going to end up hurting them, then they're going to react by lowering their, their tariffs in a reciprocal manner. But that seems, and I actually had Jeffrey There's Tucker. There's not. Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead. What did Jeff say? I, I was going to say, I had Jeffrey Tucker on, and, and, and he, la he laughed, um, yeah. and, and I, I completely understand why. So I'd like to kind of hear what's your response there to, uh, to Michael. Uh, I, will, I will second Jeff's laugh, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then I'll add two things. First of all, there's no historical example where that happened. Right. It just it just not it doesn't happen that way. Right. Uh, so, so number one, uh, number two, there's not one shred of evidence in the 20 or 30 years that Donald Trump has been a public figure that he actually thinks that free trade is a good idea. Every single thing he's ever said for 20 or 30 years has been this same kind of economic nationalism. He's remarkably consistent about it. So this idea that somehow he's secretly a free trader trying to, and even just, what, a week or two ago, right, the EU offered to pull down a whole bunch of barriers if we would too, and he said no. So, yep. so this is, this is, this is nonsense. And, and it's, it's, I'm, I'm just so nauseated by, by these Trump supporters uh, who were once free market types who have to rationalize their their support for this crazy person by in, by in sort of inventing these convoluted stories of how he's really a free market guy. And no, he's not. He's exact. He, first of all, he's not even smart enough to know what he is. But to the extent mm. he's something, it's every it's exactly what it seems on the surface. There's no depth to Donald J. Trump. It's a populism. I mean, it's the yeah. only thing I can really explain away what it, what is Donald Trump because his opinions seem to, to to float with the wind. Whatever you know, the, the popularity of an issue is leaning one way or the other. He'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. 
it's it's yep. kind of disheartening because that sentiment actually resonates with a lot of the the Trump voters, the Trump base, which unfortunately has been that group of people who they were the ones that were voting for Donald Trump based on his saying, I'm going to bring back these jobs to America. And it's just, it's, it's really disheartening because they, they don't realize that they're supporting these nationalistic tariffs and these nationalistic uh, trade policies. It's actually going to, you know, have a converse reaction compared to what they're hoping for. Yeah. That's, that's right, right. That's why. Why? Uh, what is what is my uh, uh, James Pathakis at, at AI called backfire economics, or maybe it's maybe it's my friend Mark Perry backfire economics. Right? <laughs> I think it's Mark. Right? It's you know you hold you aim the bazooka at someone, but it actually shoots backwards and hits you. Right? That's exactly you know, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so let's uh let's let let's let's go to the last topic I wanted to discuss, and I wanted to to bring this up with you just because um i think it'd be a great great way to kind of recap my my conversation from earlier this week with uh with, with keith rubino now keith is an absolutely fantastic guy very down to earth very uh very polite i just think he's wrong on a lot of policy um but we had a, a an absolutely fantastic conversation a very cordial conversation um he came into politics you know with more of the, the bernie sanders crowd and really endorses mm-hmm. the the concepts of democratic socialism now when he he started talking about democratic socialism he prefaced the discussion saying well it's not the demo you know whenever people talk about socialism they point towards venezuela and that's not the, the air quote socialism that i'm talking about i'm talking about your fire departments your police departments your your public works departments um and i i, I you know let him go on i let him give his vision for what he would want to see in terms of a quote unquote democratic socialist society. Um, and really, you know, in his running for New York state assembly, he basically said that, you know, the problem is not the, the system. It's that New York state itself isn't, isn't spending the money properly. And I, I did counter back saying, well, that's kind of the, the, the point is that whenever you right. have these, these bureaucracies, they, they create a system that makes it so it is inefficient inherently at its core. So, right. Going back to the ideas, democratic socialism, as libertarians, it's inherently, you know, opposite to our beliefs and our principles. So could you kind of give a, a Steve Horowitz takedown of democratic socialism to not, not necessarily to Keith, but just to the idea that right. it's scary. Almost a majority of Americans at this point don't view socialism in a negative connotation anymore. So I think we need to slap back to reality. I'm going to go to, to Dr. Horowitz here to, to give that uh, slide back. <laughs> well, we could be here for an hour now. But look, okay, let me say one thing first. If, if, if socialists want to hold up the, the racist police departments as their example of democratic socialism, go right ahead. Because, <laughs> right? I mean, if, you're, if you think that's socialism, I don't want any part of it. And, you, and, and, and those folks on the left are the ones who frequently say, I mean, Black Lives Matter, but the cops are my example of what I want as democratic. Democratic socialism? Really? <laughs> That's what you want to say? <laughs> and the okay. roads. Uh, so, yeah, right. Well, there's that. Right. And, and pl- I mean, we could go on and on about the ways in which the things that they call socialism. One of the problems here, of course, is that, that conservatives have, have asked for this by calling mm-hmm. everything that Obama did socialism when it wasn't. Right. Now you basically so. Oh, so these guys, you know, it's all socialism. Fine. It's, it's all socialism. So here you have people like like John saying, right. OK, you want to call it. Socialism, it's police departments and libraries and blah, blah, blah. Aside from the fact, by the way, they public libraries, many of whom were funded by who? Andrew Carnegie and all these great capitalists. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and well, I could go on with that point. But let me go to the other stuff. Look, the problem with 
as, as I understand what democratic social, what serious democratic socialism is, these are people who want the public to have more say in the allocation of more resources. The problem they see is that too many things in the U.S. economy are allocated uh, by profit-seeking private owners. So we need democratic control of those resources. Does that mean nationalizing companies and putting the control over them in the hands of what voters or, 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 or legislatures? I think for some of many of them it does. For others, it might mean, you know, uh, 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 more democratic participation in things like the Federal Reserve and all these sorts of things. At the end of the day, the problem with socialism, with democratic socialism, is that it's socialism, right, in the following right. way. If, if what you're trying to do is to abolish uh, private property in, and certainly in the means of production or, or abolish market prices or abolish profits and losses – what you're doing is you're cutting off the most important institutions that we have to help people not only decide what to produce, what others want, but more importantly, to decide best how to produce it, right? You can know that people want running shoes. How do we produce them? You can, if you say we need socialized health care, okay, fine. What kind of health care? Produced by whom? Using what equipment? How many nurses do we need? How many doctors do we need? How many checkups should people have? Answering all of those questions requires some kind of system for comparing the value of alternative choices, right? And this is what prices and profits do. Prices help us make those choices ahead of time. Profits tell us whether and losses tell us whether we did it well or poorly. And if and if what democratic socialism means is like the old socialists, we're going to still we want to get rid of those pieces of, 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 of private enterprise. But we want to replace it instead of replace it with a kind of totalitarian regime. We want to replace it with the democratic process. It doesn't matter whether the process is democratic or authoritarian. The problem is you're replacing the market without which we can't make those decisions. And, and another thing I'd add is because even through a democratic process, societies that go that way are going to have problems. Eventually, they're going to face a choice. They're going to say eventually either we got to give up on the socialism, right? Or we got to give up on the democracy, uh, right? And, and and that's and that's we historically that's what we've seen happen. And when you give up on the socialism, right? Even when you give up on the socialism, I mean, when when you when you when you create the institutions that democratic socialism requires, if the democracy part doesn't work and the socialism part doesn't work, you're still going to have these institutions of power there. They're just not doing what they were supposed to do. And who's going to come in and take over those institutions of power? People who have a comparative advantage at exercising it and not caring too much about the democratic process. So again, your democratic socialism creates incredible institutions of power and somehow believes naively, I think, that that the demo democratic process will will use those for good and can control the kinds of, of things that they do with it. And I just don't think that's going to happen. I have to ask a question now. So the argument that, that Keith gave was, well, fire departments, police departments, public works. That's that's what we mean when we say democratic socialism. And you know you could even throw in education and healthcare. So right. who who who's the now obviously libertarians are going to say privatize. But yeah. I wanted to kind of get your perspective as an economist. What is truly like a a market answer to address the issues or or those those various needs that society needs in order to function effectively? 
Well, right. I mean, so what, I, I, rather than privatize, I would say demonopolize, de especially in the case of education, right? But but to point to these things, do you really want to point to the U.S. public education system as your gleaming example of socialism? <laughs> right. I I mean, I don't know about you, but it's got some real problems. Not and not to our healthcare system is socialism already. Then why do we need single payer? And what's what's the problem with the current system? If it, I mean, if those are his examples of socialism, those are exam those aren't socialism, though the healthcare system is a little closer. Those are those are in the case of education system, a state-run monopoly. In the case of healthcare, you have sort of this massively intervened in quasi-market. That's sort of the worst of both worlds, right? I mean, it, you know, so to, to sort of call these examples of socialism is just an abuse of the word socialism. But once again, conservatives have asked for this by dumbing down what socialism was during the Obama years. So so now there's this whole generation who thinks that socialism is, is the good stuff that Canada and the Nordic countries and the Scandinavian countries have, right? No, I mean. We, we know what real socialism is. We, we can count tens of millions of deaths from it. We know why it doesn't work, democratic or otherwise. Uh, and, and, and the other part of this problem I might note is that we keep referring people who refer and conservatives do sometimes to the current U.S. economy as a free market economy are also causing this problem, right? Because the economy's got problems and certainly did, you know. <laughs> For the last ten years, so if you if you're referring to us as having a free market, yet it's got all these problems, then why would anyone want a free market? So again, we're you know when we start using words this way, we play right into the hands of the left, I think, and and, yep. and we've asked for this, or I shouldn't say we because I haven't. <laughs> words matter. Have. Words, words matter. matter. Yes, hundred percent. So here we are, 2018. We're recording on September 13th. And uh, we're just under two years uh, of Donald Trump as president here in the United States, which I still am just. I marvel the fact that we have Donald Trump as our president, but nonetheless, yeah. um, we have two more years at the very least of, of Trump's presidency. And I want to get an economist perspective. I asked Jeffrey Tucker this, and I want to hear your perspective, uh, Steve. What, where, where do you think America is, both in terms of our society, but also in terms of our economic strength and viability as we we conclude the 2020 elections? And let's say, you know, hypothetically, Trump gets reelected, which I think if the Democrats and liberals keep yep. on acting the way they are, yep. is a very real possibility. Yep. Um, 2024, where do we stand? Well, you know, it's weird, right? First of all, in, in, by a number of measures, the economy is doing pretty well. And that, that recovery started under Obama, it's, and the credit goes to neither Obama nor Trump. What, you know, recessions only last for so long, and then you get recovery, and economies do better regardless of who the president is, right? So that's that's not that's not the issue here. Um, so that that'd be my, my first point. So you know, things things are going things in that sense are not bad if you look at a lot of the data. Uh, I, my big my big economic fear is what we were just talking about a little bit ago, which is the economic nationalism, right? That we start to, you know, we continue to erect these trade barriers and we, we tear down trade. We're going to harm significantly American consumers. Uh, and those numbers, those numbers will, will not hold up. Um, so, you know, economically, the forces that matter are beyond Trump and Obama. Uh, so, so, so credit or blame either way really isn't really isn't the issue. Uh, but by a number of measures, things are going pretty well. Uh, the other thing, I, but what worries me more is not the economic stuff. What worries me more is is the sort of foreign policy and immigration and the sort of erosion of constitutional norms that we've seen the last two years. Uh, we, we've we've redefined normal behavior for presidents in a way that I think is incredible. 
incredibly problematic. Now, some libertarians are of the burn it all down view, right? That this is good. We got to stop. And I, and I'm not one of those, right? I do think there's, you know, as much as I dislike the state, right? If we've got one, there's certain rules it's supposed to follow. <laughs> and I want to make sure that those rules are are, are in place and, and followed. Otherwise, what we get is, is, is sheer chaos and demagoguery and populism uh, populism and, and that's what we've seen be in, in places with Trump in ways that I think are extraordinarily dangerous um, and then you throw on top of that the kinds of things that ice is doing you, you throw on that the, the other sorts of things with immigration and uh, and the Muslim ban and all these sorts of things and you really have uh, what I think is a is a human rights disaster agreed I got my bachelor's in uh, political science down on my yeah. college and um, one thing I, I think it's important for people to especially within the greater, I'd say, populist conservative movement. And we, we watched this with Obama as we went to, to Trump, but we also saw it from Bush going to Obama and, and conversely from Clinton to Bush is that the political pendulum swings one way and then swings back the other way. The problem is, is that instead of swing, you know, a little bit, it's, it's yes. swung so far to the left so far, and so far to the right. right. I think that's right. And I was going to say that earlier too, real quick. I think that the democratic socialist backlash here, right, is 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 that's consistent with what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. um, that the perception is is that 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 the sort of reasonable moderate Democrats couldn't beat Trump, so so you know we have to go we have to go all the way, and and you know I mean Hillary Clinton, the distance between Hillary Clinton and Trump on policy was not very big at all. Nope. Right. So. You know. And here they're they're supposedly getting ready to nominate someone like uh, Michael Avenatti, the. Uh, the, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. I'm just like, I mean, it, they're looking for their version of Trump, and they may have found him. And I think it's why you're seeing guys like like Cory Booker who are trying to to you know play this bombastic personality in the public light. And you know, he he had his a uh, I am Spartacus moment there with yeah, the yeah. the Kavanaugh hearing. It's like, dude, you're not you're not Trump. You're you're a mild mannered guy from North Jersey. Like, come on, calm yeah. down. It's not you. But uh, with that being said, yeah. I want to to give you a, a platform here. So you mentioned beforehand you're getting ready to to release a project you've been working on with the Cato Institute. So give us uh, some perspective and where folks can find that. Yeah, so um, I, I write occasionally for libertarianism.org, which is a Cato Institute project, and they also they have been producing a series of sort of short books and then video and audio lectures to go with it. They asked me to do the one on Austrian economics. Uh, I've written the book, I've recorded all the stuff. They are doing the production work, and you know I, I don't know when it'll appear. I'm, I'm hopeful it'll appear before the end of the year, but that'll be a, a big splashy project at, at, at Cato and libertarianism.org. So. People should watch for that, and the and the best way to find out, you know, what I'm up to is to follow me on Facebook. There we go. I'm I'm full up at five thousand friends, but you can always click the follow button. Um, if you want to be a, a little more aggressive, you can you can send me a message and say you heard me on the Brian Nichols show, and I, and, and maybe I'll move you to the top of the line. Uh, we'll <laughs> see. But you can always follow me there. There I have a public figure page as well, uh, where I post. I don't post as often there, and it's not as fun and crazy and rowdy. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you can you can certainly get me either of those places. I still blog at Bleeding Heart Libertarians uh, from time to time, and uh, and so that's another another place that you can you can find me as well. Trust the experts. We're all in this together. If it saves one life, raise your hand if you heard any of those tiresome phrases over the past year and a half. I know my hand is currently raised. Millions of people across dozens of industries were labeled unessential and forced to lock down with livelihoods and futures crushed in an instant. And as government has continued to expand its power and leverage fear to turn neighbor against neighbor, a group of filmmakers have taken a stand and are determined to help set the record straight on the importance of following the actual 
science of the pandemic. Follow the science on Lockdowns and Liberty from the Sound Mind Creative Group is a brand new docuseries highlighting the stories of those negatively impacted over the past year and a half by ineffective government policies enacted in the name of following the science. With noted experts like Nick Hudson from Panda, the Pandemic Data and Analytics Organization, healthcare policy advisors like Scott Atlas, and telling the stories of business owners, families, and just your average everyday person harmed by these government mandates. Follow the science on Lockdowns and Liberty is giving us a chance to make sure the true stories of the pandemic are told. So please help us at the Brian Nichols Show in supporting the Sound Mind Creative Group. With noted figures in the Liberty Movement like Dr. Tom Woods donating thousands of their own dollars to this project, you know just how important this project is. So head to BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash follow the science to donate and catch their brand new trailer to the docuseries one more time. That's BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash follow the science. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up our conversation from September 2018 with the late, great Steve Horowitz. So thankful we have a, a platform here on The Brian Nichols Show that I can talk to amazing people like Steve and then uh, document his words for, for all time. Um, and really, this is a conversation that can, in fact, withstand the test of time. So uh, just eternally grateful to have that conversation with Steve. So folks, if you enjoy the episode as much as I did, please do me a favor and go ahead and share the episode. And when you do, go ahead and uh, let me know. Tag me at B. Nichols Liberty. Otherwise, that being said, coming up tomorrow, our good friend Jeremy Todd returns to the program and he kind of plays host a little bit. I like it because he digs into basically what I do all day long, and that is BDR stuff, SDR stuff, sales development, business development, specifically digging into, uh, number one, finding people who you're, you're either your service or your product can actually help solve their problems. And then we apply this to Yes, our greater libertarian world. So Jeremy asked some great questions, as is the reoccurring theme with the best sales folks out there. So Jeremy, thank you as always. Uh, folks, make sure you don't miss that amazing conversation tomorrow. Also, we have some awesome, exciting news to announce. Make sure you do not miss it. Hit that subscribe button so you're not missing anytime a brand new episode hits your podcast feed bright and early, usually during the weekdays, 5 a.m., and then, of course, my morning sales huddle coming shortly thereafter. But with that being said, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for the late, great Steve Horwitz. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. Want to help us reach more people? Give the show a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. Find us at BrianNicholsShow.com and download the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on social media at BNicholsLiberty and consider donating to the show at BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Laura Stanley, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network.